Now we're going to look back at uh, Job chapter 4 and 5, the first dialogue uh, between Job and his friends. And uh, it's uh, Eliphaz, the most senior uh, of his counselors, that comes to speak to him. Now you might be wondering about the maths of this a little bit, because this is the fifth sermon we've done in the book of Job. I said we're going to do 12, and we're only on chapter 4 and 5. Okay, so... Uh, that's because we're, we're going to take a slip. We're going to go a different pace from now on. Up till now, you've kind of been in a, a Highland single-track road with passing places, and we're going to hit that. We're going to hit the motorway now. Okay, so we're going to be going much faster from now on through the book. So the first part was really bedding down um, the whole context and uh, uh, the narrative of the event, and now we come into the kind of poetic dialogue between Job and his three friends and. It's quite repetitive in some ways. It kind of it's a, a spiral into more uh, intense argument all the way through, and so we're going to take a look at um, each of the friends of Job and and the emphasis they have, and also Job's response. But we'll not be we'll not be reading the whole book because this takes us from chapter four through to chapter thirty-seven. So we'll not be looking uh, at these chapters in great detail. We'll be picking and choosing. Uh, some of them. But I do hope you'll still read the whole book because it does give you, as I've said, a flavor of what's happening in the end of the story is uh, very important. So we have here, uh, after seven days of silence and uh, them coming alongside and comforting Job in this way, uh, Job responds and splurges out his feelings of depression and uh, uh, despair and uh, that is what triggers Eliphaz to respond and to speak to him. Um, and he comes with his own set of understandings of God. And we see that throughout uh, the arguments that they all have, uh, uh, the three friends of Job. What is it then, briefly, what are the fundamental things that Eliphaz believes about God that he goes on to apply in the advice that he gives to Job. And remember, we're looking at um, uh, counseling, we're looking at sharing truth, we're looking at uh, suffering and the bigger picture of what God is saying uh, to us uh, in uh, this book. But what did Eliphaz believe? What lies behind his reasoning for what he says here? Well, very simply, and not going into any detail, he believes that God is sovereign, that God is in control of the situation, just sovereign God. He believes that God is just. The, the fundamental argument that the Job's free, three friends have is that God punishes evil and God blesses or rewards good. That is the very basic reality that they are arguing here. That God is a just God and that he always punishes evil and he always blesses good, even in the short term. So that when they see Job losing everything and not being blessed, they think he must have some unresolved and unconfessed sin that he needs to deal with uh, before God. God is sovereign and God is just. And also they, he, they believe and he believes that God is merciful. The last section of uh, chapter 5 particularly uh, reminds us of that. They believe God is a merciful God, that he is a, he's a forgiving God, and that as we sacrifice to him in the shadows of the Old Testament as they did, then that he would forgive. Now, these things he believed. God is sovereign, God is just, and God is merciful. And we have to, we have to 
consider that he believed it in an Old Testament context, that it was raw, that it was in shadows, um, that much of the outworking of that was kind of, um, it, was, it was like works-based righteousness in some ways for them. It was outwardly expressed. It was embryonic faith, but it was still genuine and real faith, blurred possibly. But with these shadows, these Old Testament uh, shadowy realities that he was living under, he didn't have all the benefit of the Word of God and of the reality and the, the incarnation of Jesus and uh, his, his life and death and resurrection and teaching that we have and the gift of the Holy Spirit in the way that we do. Uh, but nonetheless, his trust uh, was on this God uh, in whom he had put his faith. And we share these truths of God. We believe God is sovereign. We believe God is just. And we believe God is merciful. That is the revelation that is given to us. And there's much that we can see in these chapters uh, that we would, you know, if you had a highlighter pen, you would look at in terms of, I agree with this. I agree with what he says. This is right in terms of his uh, expression and, and uh, his uh, understanding of the character of God. Look at 17 and 18 of chapter 5. Behold, blessed is the one God reproves. Don't despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. We'll find again and again, as we work through Job, that there are statements that the uh, three friends of Job make that we understand and that we appreciate and that we would give our amen to. But we are faced with tensions. We are faced with tensions as we look at this because as you read some of what Eliphaz says, you may say, well, absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. But yet we must take our, our, our agreement to the end of Job where, Job where God says to Job, where he says to Job's three friends, I am angry with you because you didn't say what was right about me. So we have a tension we have a tension between what they say, much of which we agree, God is just, God is merciful, God is sovereign, and what God says to them. It was that they misapplied that truth. And there is a huge amount we can learn about misapplying truth into situations that we find ourselves in, in either for ourselves or for others. It's not that fundamentally they, they said what was wrong about God although their emphasis may have been wrong, but certainly in their application of it to Job's situation, it was wrong and God was not happy with them. So we're faced with that tension. But I think if we're thinking Christians, we are also faced with the tension that uh, we live in a world where this is not their mindset. They don't think of God, and maybe they don't think of God at all. Maybe they don't believe in God. But even if they do believe in God, it may well be that they don't believe in a God who is sovereign, who is just, and who is merciful, the God that we believe in. And so it's important, and the God that is revealed, it's important for us to know what we believe and also to challenge those who don't know, who don't believe in God, about the options. If God isn't sovereign, then who is? If God isn't the one who uh, executes justice, who does? If God isn't merciful, who will be? And the reality is, if you're sitting here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you may not verbalize it as such, but in effect, you're 
you're claiming sovereignty over your own life. You're the one who's making the decision about what's right and wrong and choosing justice. And presumably you're the one who thinks that inherently you're good enough not to need a saviour and not to need Jesus Christ. And that is something that we need uh, gently and uh, respectfully to challenge people about because many, uh, I think many people don't think about these things. It's good and easy to throw God out of the equation of life and living. It's, it's easy to be deceived into thinking uh, and listening to the, the shallow arguments of who God is and who God isn't. But it's important to challenge people on these areas of life and uh, what they do with them and what they do with the living God. So there's tensions for us in our faith and there's tensions for us as we look at the Bible and as we look at um, uh, what the end of the story is and what God says to these three friends of uh, Job. So let's take a look briefly at this, these two chapters uh, which uh, constitute the first um, of three rounds of arguments or uh, Uh, speeches that the friends of uh, Job make to him to advise him about his suffering and why he's suffering and what he should do about it. What does Eliphaz advise? Okay, Now we're only kind of going to be able to skim the surface really uh, in this. But the title of the sermon is uh, So Spiritual and that is really uh, what comes across from Eliphaz. He's a really spiritual spiritual guy, or at least he thinks he is, in the advice he gives uh, to Job. So what's the, what's the first piece of advice he gives? Well, the first, four, first six verses of chapter 4 uh, really give us the first piece of advice that he gives to uh, Job in his struggles. He says to him, basically, Job, you've been a great counselor to people. You've counseled people in this situation before. Therefore, what's important for you is to take your own advice that you've given in the past. Practice what you preach, Job. That's what he says. He says, you know, you've really preached to others and you've helped them and uh, your words have upheld those who were stumbling. You've made firm the feeble knees. But now it's come to you and you're impatient. Why don't you now uh, take the advice that you've given to others to yourself? You know, if you fear God and he's your confidence and integrity of your ways is your hope, then understand that. Take that. And preach it to yourself, and that will help your situation. You've counseled others, now heal yourself. And that's the first thing he says. Now that is for him, it's quite easy. And I'm, I'm not sure if at this point he's sympathetic to Job, whether he agrees uh, that Job is completely innocent and that his hope is uh, in his integrity. But he thinks that that will simply and quickly deal with the situation he finds himself in. Apply hope to yourself. And in the face of it, that's decent enough advice, isn't it? But it's hugely clinical. And there's a lack of understanding of Job's own situation, which is clearly far worse than any other situation he had counseled himself. So that Job would never have been counseling someone in the same situation as himself, who had lost absolutely everything in this divine um, test Uh, that was going on behind the scenes in the life of Job. There was no real empathy for Job's situation and for his suffering. It was rather formulaic and rather simple. You know, you've got good advice, you've given good advice, just take your own advice. And I think we can learn from that. 
in the way that we think of and treat other people uh, who may be uh, struggling and battling and who may be very wise and have given great advice in the past. But isn't it often the case? We can see the needs in others more than we can apply it to ourselves. And sometimes our own situation makes it very difficult uh, to uh, understand and know exactly how to respond. So that's the first thing he says. Then he goes on in verses uh, through uh, 7, uh, right through to uh, 21. Uh, he really goes on, or maybe to 17 particularly. Uh, he goes on to say something very interesting to Job. The second piece of advice is uh, from Eliphaz. I know God's mind for you. I know what God wants for you. Uh, in the first section, he just says, you know, remember, uh, was it the innocents ever perished or were the upright ever cut off? He says, you know, God only condemns evil job. That's what he's saying to you. Um, you know, that there'll be mercy for you if you confess this unforgiven sin that you must have in your heart. Because this is so important because they have come, the Job's three friends have come. And if Job is innocent as he claims to be, that is that he's blameless and not hiding sin in his heart, and yet he's still suffering, then that blows out of the water their theology and their understanding of the way God acts. Because they see God acting absolutely good is rewarded, evil is judged and uh, punished on the spot, as it were. And they're, they're concerned then, if, if that's not the case, then they may have to suffer also in their lives. So he says, look, God only condemns evil. But more significantly in verse 12, I think, to 21, he says, God has spoken directly to me about you. There's this marvelous little section where he speaks about a word being brought to him stealthily uh, in, uh, when, in, during the night. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still. I couldn't discern its appearance. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be right before God? So there's this, this advice that he gives which says, look, I know what God is saying to me for you. Uh, God has spoken to me directly. I've got a direct line to heaven about your situation and I know what uh, God is saying. Now, that's, that's a hugely uh, challenging thing to say. Um, he's basically saying, I have God's mind on this for you completely and utterly because not only do I know about God and his past dealings, but God has spoken directly to me about it. There's no question that uh, he thinks this is a message from God. There's no question that he's doubting or questioning whether it may be a malevolent spirit that is speaking to him. God has spoken directly. Job, I know what God wants you to do here. I know you can't possibly be right before God. It's impossible. Uh, and you need to confess your sin. I have a message for you. Now, there's a danger in that kind of uh, counsel, in that kind of advice to others, where we would ever say, look, God has spoken to me directly about what you need to do. We have, I have the mind of God for you. God told me 
what you need to do. It, it claims infallibility, doesn't it? It's saying, well, actually, you can't second guess this. You can't argue against it. You can't say anything because God has spoken to me. And it can sometimes surely be seeking divine credibility for what we just think ourselves. I think as Christians, especially when we are giving advice to others, we need to think very carefully about what we say. We need to test the spirits. We need to remember that Satan comes as an angel of light. And we need not to be deceived or insensitive. But we also need to be people who are open to God speaking to us in our lives as Christians because we have a relationship with him and we need to recognize that. So a second piece of advice is I know God's mind in this. His third piece of advice from verses uh, uh, chapter 5 primarily and verses uh, 8 to 27, the second half of it, is really just uh, job Take the medicine. Take the medicine. You're, you know, you're guilty. Uh, as for me, I would seek God, uh, and to God I would commit my cause. And then in verse 17, blessed, you know, behold, blessed is the one who God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. He's made, he's made his decision. He's saying you're being disciplined for wrongdoing. Therefore, just take the medicine, uh, repent, and then you will receive. And he goes on to speak about all the good things you'll receive again if he repents. And all the things that Job has lost. He kind of dangles it before Job again and says, this, you'll get all this back if all you do is repent. And then he finishes with that astonishing statement. You know, behold, this we have searched out. It is true here and know it for your good. Put it into practice. What we've said to you is absolute truth. Just take the medicine. Just do it. You know? And that's how he finishes. You know, we've looked into this. This is the truth. Just do what we say here. Repent and, and be done with it. And it's strange, you know, because he does speak of the mercy of God in these verses. And he speaks about um, what God does for those who repent and turn away. And that's true, but he's misappropriating the situation. He's taking the beautiful jewels of God's mercy and he's flinging them at Job in a handful of mud. Because he has misunderstood Job's situation. He's making uh, assumptions about unconfessed sin. He's judged the situation that Job finds, him in, uh, finds himself in wrongly. And we can learn also, can we not, from that? as we so often make judgments about other people and as we seek to bring counsel to other people, that there must be, there must always, because what there clearly isn't here is there clearly isn't any self-reflection about God dealing with Eliphaz in his own life, but neither is there much humility or empathy or respect for Job's situation and there's a claim of infinite wisdom and a theoretical spirituality. This guy knows his God theoretically. He's wise. He's one of the great wise men of the day. And he knows about the character of God, as it were, kind of in theory, but he, he misapplies it to the person of uh, Job. Uh, James Dobson, the, uh, the guy who writes about uh, child parents and child Christians and how to discipline your children and all these things, he says that, uh, I, he, that he had four theories of child rearing and no children. And then he had four children, and he had no theories of child rearing. 
And that's often the way, isn't it? We've got great theory. You know, we know how it ought to be done, as it were, um, until we find ourselves in a situation where, it's, where it needs to be applied practically and where we need to think about others and the needs of others. And sometimes the theory we have needs to be adapted and changed. Not the principles and not the truths, but they need to be applied sensitively and graciously into the lives uh, of others, knowing about their circumstances. You know, we can take truth of God and we can misapply it. Can I give you a classic free church example? Uh, Historically, uh, traditionally, um, doctrinally, is that we take, uh, some will take the truth of the election of of, uh, believers, those who are chosen to believe, and take that election, which is a biblical truth, and uh, they will take that truth which they have heard in pulpits and they will use it to not believe because they will say, I'm not chosen. And I can't do anything in God until God touches me. Now, it's true and it's false, isn't it? Because nowhere in the Bible are we given that reason for not coming to Christ. And you stand before Christ on the day of judgment and say, well, I didn't know if I was elect, so I just waited to find out. God will say, that is not a, a, a justifiable reason from staying away from the offer of grace which was there for you with my arms open wide. Whoever will come to me, I will not turn away. And so it's truth, but it's misapplied. And it's misapplied to, in a twisted way to justify unbelief and staying away from Jesus Christ and God. So truth and applying that is hugely significant. And I think that's one of the things we find in the counsel uh, uh, that Job has given, uh, the sensitivity we must have to these things. So, taking that knowledge, I just want to finish uh, in the last uh, few minutes with looking at some of the staggering paradoxes that come across from the questions, uh, or at least some of the questions that Eliphaz asks in uh, this ch- these chapters. Questions that point beyond his own knowledge and point towards uh, the wider truth. I think it's very important always to look at the wider truth in Job, not just the wider truth of Job, but the wider truth of uh, biblical revelation. There's three vital uh, questions which takes us in many ways beyond this passage uh, into uh, maybe realms that we're more familiar with. First of all, in verse 7, he asks the question in chapter 4, remember who that was innocent ever perished? I think it's rather a clunky translation that you have here in the ESV. The NIV puts it much better. It says, consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. So that's his question. That's the question he throws out. You see, and he's taking the purity of God's justice and saying, you know, God's justice demands that the innocent are rewarded and that it's only the guilty who are punished. Who that was ever innocent, perished, or was judged? And the question is, yes. Absolutely yes. It's the genius of God's salvation. And Jesus Christ is, there was somebody who was innocent that perished on our behalf. That's the glorious truth of the gospel that, that dovetails and brings together at the foot of the cross righteousness and mercy that they kiss there because God's divine justice is met and his mercy is outworked at the cross because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was innocent, yet he died. He was judged. And he was judged and uh, 
uh, judged unjustly and suffered greatly, though he was innocent, and knew no mercy, although he was innocent, and experienced hell, though he was innocent, because he was doing it in our place. Because he loves us, because we needed rescued, and because we can't be innocent before God because we are sinners. And so this question begs forward into the New Testament, the reality of Jesus Christ, who died and who rose again, satisfying divine justice and defeating the power of evil. So that you and I today, as Christians, are claiming not our own innocence, but his. Our justification before God is that we are covered in the righteousness and the innocence of Jesus Christ. So that we will not perish so that we will not die. So in God's eyes, we are as innocent. That's great truth. That's important and valuable and great truth. Beyond the understanding of men and angels, I don't think the angels had any concept of what Jesus Christ would come to do, nor indeed do I think Satan did, even at this point. That he fully understood what God was going to come to do in Jesus Christ. Do the innocent ever perish? The answer is yes. But it was just. But then he asks in verse 17, can, this is the, the word he was given by the spirit, this ethereal spirit that came to him during the night. And this was this amazing revelation he got from the spirit. Can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And it may well have been that the spirit that Eliphaz took to be a spirit of God was actually a malevolent spirit. And it was throwing out this question, which is really at the very heart of Satan's accusation against God right away, which was, you know, give up a job. There's no way any human beings can be right before God. They've let you down once, they'll let you down again. Because he didn't, he didn't appreciate God's salvation and God's mercy and the faith that Job had been given. Can a mortal man be right before God? Eliphaz asks, and again we say, yes, 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 we can. We absolutely can be right before God. Because we have a bought innocence. It's not our own. It's a gift. It's bought with the precious blood of Christ. But it's offered to us freely. And uh, that is where our hope lies. You know, so all the questions of the evil one who says, you know, you can't be a believer you can't possibly be right before God. None of these things are true of you. Just give it all up. We battle back and say, yes, we can be right before God. There is hope for humanity. And we somehow need to get it across to people. And we need somehow to get, gain their respect so that they hear and understand and know that we're not judging them, that we're not casting stones at them, that we are those who have come to recognize the glory and the gift of God. I'm doing a funeral on Tuesday uh, for uh, an old lady who had, uh, as far as I know, no real church connection. Uh, I married her, uh, did the marriage ceremony uh, for her uh, daughter uh, in the summer, and they have no real church connection. And so you've got a funeral uh, in a crematorium maybe 50 or 60 people. None, as far as I'm aware, and I'm not, I'm not judging that everyone there will not be Christian, but from my interaction with them so far, 
are people who have no background in the gospel or in truth or in the Bible. Pray that somehow I will get across to them the beauty, but also the need for them to think beyond this life and what they're doing and their own inherent goodness and the naturalness as if life and death just happen. To somehow point them to Jesus that is true and challenging, but not come, that doesn't come across as judgmental or holier than thou or unreal. It has to be real for them. And they have to respect the truth to hear it. And will you pray that somehow they will? I've never been able to do that. In all my years of doing these kind of funerals, it's, it's never been something that funerals seem to be things that people go to and just switch off. And it doesn't matter what you would say, it doesn't seem to meet them at their point of need. And we need to wrestle with how we bring the gospel to people who have no background and no knowledge and no understanding and no uh, thought process in their living. And that will apply to most of the people you work alongside and you study with. We get the gospel into their hearts and right. So do the innocent ever perish? Can a man be mortal before God? And in chapter 5, verse 1, the third question, with this we finish, uh, call now, is there anyone who will answer you? Is there anyone who will answer you? Eliphaz is asking that because he thinks God will not answer Job in his current condition because he needs to change because he's suffering uh, justifiably and yet he's not. He's suffering as an innocent person as in one who's not harboring uh, secret sin. So the question is for us call now who will answer Well, because of Jesus Christ, in our sufferings as believers, as we take and apply our needs and our despair and our depression, uh, we will and can cry out because he will answer. We have that guarantee. Even when it all seems darkness and it all seems like silence, he is there and he may be delaying his answer, but he will answer and there is a purpose. And that's surely one of the the whole reasons behind Job is that we get the end of the story uh, and we're not just plunged and left with uh, you know, a story that's incompleted and God's dealings being incomplete. Now there's various different verses in the New Testament, some of which uh, I refer to in the questions. The questions went out with the bulletin sheet today. And if, even if you can't make the city group on Wednesday because we'll discuss them on Wednesday night, I think it's good to reflect on these questions. Uh, on the basis of of the sermon and think more about it and pray more about it and consider uh, what God is saying and taking it further than than the sermon can do. But we know from many texts in the New Testament, from many teaching in the New Testament, that Christians are called to suffer. We share in the sufferings of Christ. And he suffered, and so do we. We share in his sufferings. In fact, we are told that we make complete his sufferings. And part of that, the answer, is that because he suffered innocently and responded because he knew of the joy that was set before him, so we have to respond in a certain way to suffering that points people to Jesus also, that makes them realize that our hope is in more than just this life, 
that even in darkness and depression, that we can hold on to the faith that we have because we know that this is not the end. This is not the end of the story and that there is a future hope. But we will also face sufferings, sometimes because Colossians 3, 5 says we're putting sin to death. And that, that, that's painful. And we will suffer as we do that by being self-denying and, and self-controlled in our lives. We will also suffer because we uh, are in a society uh, where God's justice is delayed because he is sovereign. And therefore, we will be victims of injustice. And we will suffer because of that. We will suffer specifically because we are Christians, because the opposition of the enemy in his death rows is virulent and strong against those who put their trust in Christ. And sometimes we will also suffer because we are deliberately battling against and rebelling against and denying the God whom we serve. And there will be, and can be, as uh, Eliphaz says here, the hand of his discipline in love. But we're to seek to uh, reflect his joy and reflect the strength and courage and supernatural ability that we get to uh, overcome uh, in his grace and in his strength. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne in high. So as we close, let us be people who pray for deeper understanding of God so that we don't have him in our pocket and think, you know, I have the ABC, I have his completed word, I know all about God. Uh, I find the more that I study and learn of God, the less I feel I know. And uh, I do believe that we should be humble, we should worship, and we should be sensitive in our knowledge and uh, search uh, for the mind and will of God. May we be, uh, have a deeper understanding not of God, not only of God, but of other people and our counsel. May we be with them. Um, don't shy away from them. You sometimes look at this and you think, well, you know, Eliphaz and others said all the wrong things. I'd rather just not be there because I'm scared of saying the wrong thing. And uh, we all feel that. I certainly feel that uh, often. But let us uh, not shy away from people, uh, but may we also not offer simplistic, cold solutions to their suffering and to their need. And may we reflect the grace of Christ and the love of Christ by coming among them. And also a deeper understanding, not just of God and of others, but of ourselves. Uh, as we give counsel to others, it's always good to self-reflect. It's always good to look at your own life uh, before giving any help and advice. It's always good to see what God is doing with you and to consider your own responses and to be patient and joyful uh, and trusting and hopeful in the way that you think of and deal with and uh, counsel uh, others, which we are all called to do in our Christian lives as we are not called to be islands. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray.
Father uh, in heaven, we pray that you would uh, teach us more about yourself. We thank you that we know a lot more than Eliphaz knew, and uh, in many ways it makes us more culpable for how we act and respond and uh, react. We would not be too hard on the three friends of Job uh, with their knowledge, but we do know that uh, what they did know, uh, as you judged them uh, with a degree of uh, anger and a desire that they uh, repent and turn from their wrong understanding. May that be how we live our lives, uh, that we would be people ready to uh, uh, confess uh, our wrong understanding of God because so often we claim uh, the place of sovereignty. We claim uh, to be the ones who know better than God what is right and wrong. And uh, we, we accuse God of being unjust ourselves. And forgive us, Lord, when we uh, cast people aside with judgment, um, with wrong judgment, uh, and we are unmerciful or unsympathetic. We pray that we would uh, know the difference between mercy and uh, also between good and biblical uh, rebuke and advice and help. And Lord, grant us humility in all that we do to learn from Job. Remind us that many people in our congregation are suffering, suffering in different ways. May we not be indifferent. May we not be distanced. May we not blame others for maybe not recognizing uh, the needs uh, that there are. But may we take on board ourselves uh, the responsibilities that you weigh on our shoulders to um, be part of the flock and to uh, know uh, that a close uh, love and friendship and accountability that belongs to the people of God. And we pray particularly for any who may not be Christians today, who may be hiding behind different reasons, sometimes practical, sometimes intellectual, sometimes theological, for not coming to put their trust simply in Jesus Christ for time and for eternity, the author of life from whom uh, they are separated. Lord, may they come to the foot of the cross and confess all their lack of knowledge but their trust in the one who said he came, the innocent for the guilty, to become the one who is punished as guilty in order that we might become innocent before God. We ask this and plead for it in Jesus' name. Amen.